gentlemen. We have a special treat for you today. We have the one, the only. Welcome to the State Lines Network. Hey, friends. Welcome to the Boldly Going Podcast. This is episode 11, and uh, it is featuring my friend Stephanie Zito, uh, who is just amazing. She's brilliant. Uh, she has a couple of websites, one called TravelHackingCartel.com and another one called ColorCloudHammocks.com. And uh, we talk a little bit about that. Stephanie is brilliant. Stephanie is a uh, world traveler. Uh, she is an, uh, what I call a hammock enthusiast. Uh, she actually, They actually uh, design and sell their own line of hammocks that you can travel with. Super cool. You should check those out. And um, she's just all around, uh, all around brilliant adventurer. Uh, she knows how to uh, do some travel hacking. Uh, she just has a positive outlook, brilliant look on life. Uh, talking about looking for opportunities and ways to better the world, looking for opportunities uh, to do the things that you want to do, to do the things that you're passionate about. Not just waiting for things to happen, but you looking for those opportunities. Um, and, uh, we talk a little bit about choosing your own adventure, the choose your own adventure books, uh, uh, that kind of plays into that. So a uh, great, great episode. She is, she is fantastic. Uh, she was in town for a little bit in Tampa, uh, and, uh, recently, and, uh, we were meeting for coffee at one of my favorite places uh, in the Tampa Bay area called Bandit Coffee. It's in downtown St. Pete. And a uh, little side note, if you live in the Tampa Bay area, you should definitely go check out Bandit Coffee, downtown St. Pete. Uh, they are great, banditcoffee.co. Uh, go check them out. But anyway, so we met there for coffee, and uh, we decided, hey, why don't we just uh, record an episode since we're here together? Uh, it'd be great to just talk to Stephanie about travel, hacking, and uh, the world traveling she's done, and the writing she does, all those things. And so uh, we we posted up in the kind of the back room of Bandit Coffee and uh, recorded this episode. And so you're gonna hear uh, you'll hear some coffee making going on in the background. You'll hear some noise, some people talking. Uh, but it's kind of this low murmur of, of noise, kind of background noise that you'll hear, uh, because we're just, uh, a little bit, we're, we're kind of separated, but not completely sealed off, uh, from the main part of the coffee shop, but I actually like it. I think it, I think it sounds fun. Uh, you hear, hearing everything in the background. So, uh, pay close attention, listen close. It's a great episode. Uh, again, check out Stephanie's Stephanie stuff, uh, travelhackingcartel.com, colorcloudhammocks.com, and if you live in the Bay Area, go check out Bandit Coffee because they were so gracious to let us uh, post up and record an episode there. And who, uh, by the way, they're going to be on the episode uh, on the podcast uh, pretty soon as well about their their new coffee shop and what they're doing to uh, uh, to chase their dream. So uh, get ready. Uh, before we jump into that as well, I got to remind you always we are a part of the State Lines Podcast Network, and please go check out State Lines. Check out the website, check out our network, check out all the different podcasts and things that are going on there. State-Lines.com, State-Lines.com. Check that out. Uh, check out my nonprofit organization, Current Initiatives, at EngageCurrent.org. Uh, would love for you to get involved in helping your community through our organization. Please check that out. And uh, right now it's uh, Tampa Bay Lightning season. We're in the playoffs, and I'm just going to promote a little uh, side company I have called By the Way Clothing. Uh, we've got a great shirt on there supporting the team. So go check out ByTheWay.com. Uh, I'm sorry, 
bythewayclothing.com. Bythewayclothing.com. Go check out our store. We've got a great shirt supporting the Lightning. And uh, hopefully you're a Lightning fan if you're listening to this and you're not and you like the Penguins or any other team that we're playing. I'm sorry. Uh, so please don't stop listening. Please continue. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. I'm so excited about uh, you. Uh, hope, hopefully you're growing. Hopefully uh, you're learning some things from this uh, as much as I am. And thank you, thank you, thank you for the support. So uh, here we go. My friend, Stephanie Zito. Nobody's going to know in like two years from now what they do. Like people doing having multiple income streams and doing multiple jobs is like the way of the future. Mm-hmm. You know. And yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I'm an early adapter. I should figure that out. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. All right. So <laughs> it's actually already recording. Okay. Uh, so welcome, hey, welcome everybody to the podcast, boldly going podcast. Uh, we are sitting. I'm with my friend Stephanie Zito. Hello. And we're actually sitting at Bandit Bandit Coffee in downtown St. Pete. So you're gonna hear a lot of background noise. There's a lot of uh, there's coffee being made in the next room. There's people walking around. There's music playing. Doors opening. So uh, not as quiet as usual, but that's okay. We like the it's just a fun space. This is where we're gonna meet for coffee and decided let's record the conversation at the same time. So um, thanks for being on the podcast, Stephanie. Pleasure. Glad to be here. Good uh, time is being had by all. Yeah, so um, we just kind of were talking about this a minute ago, the reason that we have you on the podcast, uh, various reasons, but you do a lot of traveling, you've done a lot of traveling, you have all these travel, you know all these travel hacks, I feel like you've written some stuff about travel hacks or what? I have, um, I, I wrote, last year I wrote a book called The um, Upgrade Unlock, The Unconventional Guide to Luxury Travel on a Budget. And I co-own the site Travel Hacking Cartel. And I've Mm. been travel hacking since I think I was... Well, before I knew I was travel hacking, I used to fly a lot between Florida and Pennsylvania. And my sister and I had this game that we used to collect people's boarding passes and see who could earn the most miles or the points. We actually had no idea what they were for. But I did get my first free international ticket in 1994. Free, you got a free international ticket? <laughs> yeah. From... My second trip I ever took to the... That's amazing. To Europe was in 1994 and on continental miles. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, how do you pull that off? So how did that happen? How did that happen? Um, well, I had a bunch of miles that I didn't actually know what they were for, and I had a good friend in college, actually the person who I traveled with the most... Um, I took my first trip with her, and her dad actually lived in Sarasota, and he was like a super executive platinum continental flyer for ages and ages, and he was really into points and miles, and he's the person who actually taught me what I could do with my miles. Oh, wow. So he helped us do that, and I would say I would probably attribute my earliest points and miles knowledge to him, and that was actually before Alliances started, and so I kind of had some insight before I actually started trying to collect points and miles and then since 1997 if I date myself I've been doing international work and living overseas and um, some travel for fun a lot of travel for work and um, just living overseas so much and traveling so much has like allowed me to craft that 
kind of habit into a an income stream, into a way of life. And I really, um, I really like to teach people now how to travel because before I learned how to travel, I didn't think travel was accessible to me. And I really enjoy helping people who don't think they'll ever have the money to travel or don't think they'd ever have the opportunity to travel, helping them find a way that they can experience the world. I'm very passionate about kind of the world and change and, and people doing good, but I think if people have a chance to... I think you can tell people what the world is like, but I think until they actually see what the rest of the world is like, it's their perception doesn't change. So I feel like if you can give people an opportunity to travel and then they travel it's going to change them and in turn it's going to change the world. So I like to do that. Interesting. So um, what got you into traveling so much? Um, well, I like the quote, I've never been the same since I've seen the moonshine on the other side of the world. And <laughs> have you ever heard that? I have never I heard who, that. I don't know who said that. Say, um, say that again. I've never been the same since I have seen the moonshine on the other side of the world. Got it. And so when I was a sophomore in college, a good friend of mine convinced me to do a study abroad program in the UK. And before that, I used to think, when I was in high school, I grew up in Florida, and I used to think, if I got to go to Paris before I died, like, I would be the luckiest person ever. Like, that was... (laughs) Jason's laughing because I've been to 123 countries and I've been to all seven continents. And I used to think, like, if I got to go to Paris, like, for my honeymoon or something, that it would be the coolest thing ever. And when I had the opportunity to go on that first trip because I was going to study abroad in, in London, I had no idea that it was there was an that there was more opportunity that there would be more opportunity. And I did that, and I got my first passport stamp on January 26, 1993. It's a very life-changing day for me. Wow, you remember the day. Yes. That's amazing. (laughs) Um, Since then, like, it was something that, it was like, it seemed unattainable. And once I was there, I was like, oh, like, the world is, like, the world is accessible. The world's not that hard. Like, once you're in London, you can go to Paris. And once you're in Paris, you can go to Germany. And, you know, once you're in Germany, you can go to Prague. And... I think I just discovered that it was possible. Mm-hmm. And then the next year I had the opportunity as well when I was in college um, to do a summer study trip to China. And for me, that was kind of like super earth shattering because I had been, you know, I'd, I'd gotten to backpack around Europe and I'd gotten my free trip to Europe. My friend and I went back and backpacked a little bit more. And Europe seemed manageable, but Asia seemed like on um, the dark, you know, the dark side of the world. And um, I had that opportunity to go, and I had a cool experience there because the school I studied at in was in the Anhui province in China, which is a little tiny place in the middle of nowhere, or at least it was at the time. It's probably like population of 4 billion now, but it's, okay. um, it's a tiny little place. And while I was there, there was two foreign teachers who lived in the building where we, where our, my class stayed. There was, there was a group of like 10 of us who went on the trip. But there was these two guys who, I think one was American and one was Canadian, and they were like two years older than me, and they were working for an organization there and teaching English. And they were the first regular people I met who did international work. And something like in my head clicked when I met the two of them, and I was like, you don't have to be anybody like 
special. You don't have to come from any like privileged background. You don't have to, you know, have traveled a lot. You don't have to speak Mandarin. Like regular people can do stuff like this. And I left that trip kind of with this perspective of I want to do something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of I think the tipping point for me that I wanted to have opportunities to travel. I wanted to be able to live and work overseas. So interesting. Um, and that was like 22 years ago, I think. Thir- 22 years ago, yeah. What were you, 12? <laughs> Eight. Not no. that old. <laughs> um, travel keeps you young. Another reason to travel. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah. Uh, so I love that you said it's possible. Because I'm thinking of all the things that most people would probably ask you in this. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, well, what do you do for a living that you can just travel and live and go to some other country for however many months and stay there, uh, I feel like that's probably a natural question that you get mm-hmm. asked a mm-hmm. lot. And you were just talking about, before we really started, that trying to explain to somebody what it is you do for a living, yeah. like how you pay your uh-huh. bills is an interesting <laughs> yeah. thing. Well, I would say, that there's a, I have a couple of answers to that since I do a couple of different things, but at the time when I first started traveling, I was a student. And... I think there's a lot more opportunities for students now to do international programs than there were when I was, even when I was in college. I had my university sponsored trips to China and to the UK, and I actually went on both of them, which was kind of unusual. Hmm. Um, But I know even my niece, who's at the University of Florida, she's like, we talked about it, and there's all kinds of study abroad trips that she had the opportunity that she could have gone on and some of her right. friends went on. There's there's a lot more opportunities and when you're studying, there's different opportunities to get financial aid to do those programs. I actually spent less money when I went to my... When I studied abroad in the UK, it actually cost less for me to do that semester than it did for a regular semester because I was eligible for financial aid that I wasn't eligible for had I stayed at my regular college. Oh, so, yeah, it's, it is interesting. And I think a lot of people just assume it's going to be really expensive. Right. You know, there's actually um, university programs and graduate programs in Scandinavia that, like, master's programs that cost, like, five or $6,000 for a whole master's program. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, but you would just assume, like, oh, you know, it costs sixty grand to get a master's degree in the U.S., you know? It's, yeah. So you could do something, like, there are opportunities in other places in the world. Um, I think it's a matter of just kind of changing the way you think and looking for opportunities versus thinking of all the reasons they don't work, the things don't work. But um, when I first started working overseas, I started teaching at a university in Thailand and I think teaching is another thing that a lot of people can do in different places that you know if you want to travel and you aren't sure what you want to do it's a a way that people can live in a place and make money Mm -hmm. and I did that for a while in Thailand and I kind of did it because I knew I wanted to live overseas and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and I happened upon through a contact of a contact, someone's brother who lived in Thailand, I got a job working teaching at a university, and I was teaching um, marketing classes because that's what my background was in. And so I was like 22 and teaching marketing at a university in Thailand. I really don't know how it (laughs) happened because it was my first teaching job. Um, But you learn quickly. But it was interesting, like through the course of events, I I I started helping the Thai teachers at the school write English curriculum. 
And then from that, mm. I wound up, I happened to be in Thailand during the economy crash and I actually yeah. lost my job. And from there I came back to Florida and I worked at a foundation in Southwest Florida for two months that did, or for six months that did values-based education. Okay. And they had a curriculum that they had in middle schools. So I spent six more months working on curriculum development. And then I volunteered, I raised money and I volunteered on a hospital ship for five years. And my biggest job that I did there wound up being working with the Ministry of Education in Sierra Leone and writing a curriculum for their elementary schools that had to do with participatory education. What? Yeah, and so it was like one thing led to another and there was never any like I really want to work in I want to work in international development. So it was like one thing led to another and that's what I found myself that's what I found myself doing. Yeah. So that's so fascinating. This is why I wanted you this okay. is why I wanted to record our conversation. Because you have one of the most fascinating lives uh, in comparison to so mm-hmm. many people that I know because you uh, I'm while you're talking I'm thinking of all the different things that I want to ask you about that I that I know that you've uh-huh. done or where you've lived because you currently live in Portland yep and um, I just happen to be in St. Pete for various reasons and uh, and I still send my mail here do you really? yep <laughs> I should register to both your, here, but... <laughs> to, to your... Uh, does it go to your sister? Yep, it goes to my okay, sister's house. Yeah, so your... Um, if anyone living in St. Pete or Tampa Bay knows of Three Daughters uh, Brewing, you're, it's your brother-in-law, right? Yep. That's the head brewer there, mm-hmm. master brewer there? Yeah. Uh, so you have a big tie to St. Pete. It makes yep. sense that yep. your mail would go here. <laughs> but you live in Portland. But that, but that's the fascinating thing to me is that you... I think you said it with looking for opportunities. Mm-hmm. Where I feel like most people are so conditioned, especially in America, on... Um, I got I to gotta figure out the thing that I'm going to do in my life. Mm-hmm. So when I graduate high school, I can get an education in that thing. And mm-hmm. then I can go start my career and do okay. that thing. Um... And while that works for some people, I feel like there's a lot of people that are just lost in jobs that they don't yep. really like or is necessarily a passion of theirs because they didn't look for opportunities. Mm-hmm. I think I have two things to say to that. The first thing, actually the reason I'm in, I'm in Florida right now is I came down here to co-host a book event this weekend. My friend Chris yes. Gillibo, he, wrote, he just released a new book called Born for This. And one of the things that he talks about in that book is um, how finding the work you are born to do isn't necessarily a linear path. Mm. And when we're kids, we're conditioned to decide what we want to be when we grow up and work towards it. Yeah. But in his two years of interviewing people for this book, what he found out was, I think he used the, the quote in his presentation, you can't, you can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking backwards. And oh, how you, how the book's about how you find the path in discovering the work you're meant to do, whether that's working for yourself or working for a corporation. Um, so I recommend that. And the second thing is in my own, kind of in my own story, I gave a talk a couple weeks ago at an event called Travel Massive. I don't know if there's one in St. Pete, but it's a travel meetup. It's a great, it's a, it's a great event that's all over the world. Um, but they asked me if I would give a talk on how to build a life of travel kind of the same okay. thing. They were like, oh, you've done all these cool things. Like, how can you tell other people to do it? And right. I was like, nobody wants my life. You know, like, <laughs> I like, it's like so random. Like, no one could replicate what I've done. And so I started to think about it. And I gave this talk, and the talk was about the 
two types of books that most, the two books that most influenced me as a kid. Okay. And the first one, do you remember the Scholastic Book Fairs? Yes. The school. Okay. Oh, Apparently yeah. they still have I'm them. I'm old enough for that. Yeah. Oh, they do they? still have them, yeah. Oh, okay. My third grade nephew has one at his school this weekend. I didn't know that. Nice. So one of the books that I got at the Scholastic Book Fair Wait, was, they're not iPads? They're not like... I, I don't know. They're not Kindle? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> they might make real books still. I don't know. <laughs> the um, One of the books was the book, Free Stuff for Kids. Okay. I don't know if you remember that book. I he used not. to be able to send in these self-addressed stamped envelopes and get free stuff in the mail. So I... When people ask me how I became interested in Points and Miles, I usually say, like, it was probably free stuff for kids. I've been obsessed my whole life. That's amazing. And then the second one is the Choose Your Own Adventure book series. Yes. Do you remember those? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Right? And so I talked a lot about the Choose Your Own Adventure book series and how, you know, similar to what I just said about Chris's book, how, you know, when we grow up and we're in college and we have to pick a major, like, we're conditioned to look at the end and then pick the steps we have to get take to get there. Yes. But like in a choose your own adventure book, you don't read the last chapter first and then pick the chapters in order to reach the ending you want. Yeah. Right? Well, right. In theory. In that's theory. Not, right. <laughs> Maybe some linear people say, do. <laughs> I started to say I was really I loved those books, but I was really bad at the at them because I would go, you know, when it gives you the uh-huh. If you want to do this, uh-huh. you go to this page, uh-huh. or if you want to do this, go to this page. I would go to both of those pages, kind of scan through and see what happens. Go, all right, I'm going to go with this but one. But I think that's a, I think that's actually a really good life principle, because you're kind of investigating the opportunities that you have, mm, okay. and then you're selecting one thing yeah. based off of it, right? right? Yeah. And so for me, I look back at my life and I think I've never started out in saying. Um, you know, I want to do this, this, and this. How do I start doing it? Right. I basically like this is where I am. These are the three options that are available to me right now. What's the thing that I know I want, and how do I do that next? And so I think for me, I've kind of followed a path like a choose your own adventure book. And I think we also get to a place where maybe we don't know what we want next. And I think that kind of freaks people out as well. But I think for that, I would say, I would challenge people to like pursue, like choose the thing you're curious about. Like, what mm. are the things you're curious about or interested in now? Yeah. And kind of follow those things to see where they lead. Of course, you have to make money in the different right. things that you do. But I've had all kinds of different jobs that I've loved, and I've had a few that I've hated. And um, but that's kind of how all those different paths. You know, I didn't know I was going to go work on a ship. I didn't know I was going to work in Sudan. I didn't know I was going to do international development work. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, you know, I had, I never had a dream that last year I did a contract doing um, social media, teaching social media to the UN's recruiters. And I was like, that's not something I could ever imagine that I would have done. Right. And it was just step by step of all those little pieces that, anyway, those just step by step. Yeah. That's, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, uh... I, and you're, you, you have a faith background as well, so mm-hmm. you will understand this. In religious world or Christian world, there's a huge emphasis on finding your calling. It's kind of the statement that's mm-hmm. kind of put on it, um, which I also think contributes from a religious standpoint. Because I went to Bible college because mm-hmm. I, I did that for a while. And I remember being in Bible college and people just stressing over mm-hmm. like, what... What is the what is the pastoral job that I'm going to have? Or am mm-hmm. I going to be a missionary? Am I going to be a children's pastor? All these things. And I remember people having like their major was 
youth ministry or whatever mm-hmm. whatever it was. And people, I always thought for a while, I thought there was something wrong with me because yeah. they would say, God called me to do X. And I was like, oh. And they would ask me. I'm like, I mean, I don't know. I just yeah. know that I'm supposed to do ministry in some mm-hmm. form. I mean, whatever. If youth ministry opens up and it's the right thing, then I'll go do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was such a, like, they would stress over, I don't know, what am I going to do? Like, what, what ministry mm-hmm. job am I going to have? And all these things. And I was just like, well, what are you curious about? Yeah. And so, like, earlier this year, I was in this mentoring group, and a guy made a statement that uh, I think... I forget exactly the word of it, but basically, like, I think we put we put too much emphasis on calling and not enough emphasis on curiosity, because curiosity is what takes us to the next mm-hmm. thing. And in his and in his words, I think he his philosophy was: I think God's more concerned with what you're curious about and doing the thing that fulfills mm-hmm. you rather than the thing mm-hmm. you think He's calling yeah. you, quote unquote, to. I think curiosity also it strengthens us and it makes us better and it makes us keep growing. Like I feel sometimes when you think like, oh, I'm called to do this or like, you know, I'm going to do this and I have achieved it. Then where do you go from there? You know, yeah. we're people who are always should be growing and learning and changing. And people always ask me, what are you going to do in five years? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, what I want to do in five years doesn't exist yet. So I can't tell you about it. You know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't yeah. tell you that I would be doing digital strategy. And like, I worked in PR agencies before the internet existed, you know? Yeah. So like, I couldn't have told you when... Yeah. In years past, what I was, what I was gonna do. Yeah. Interesting. So I feel like another question that someone listening might because mm-hmm. you talked a lot about you were in school when it mm-hmm. started, which I think a lot of people kind of grasp onto. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're in college, mm-hmm. like you know, you don't have any responsibility, you mm-hmm. can do whatever. But when you're 40 years old, yeah. or whatever it is, like, well, I can't just, I can't just go mm-hmm. travel and quit my job and mm-hmm. do the thing that I want to do, um, which I'm not so, I'm not, I don't know, don't know that I believe that. I mm-hmm. think you can do whatever you want when, at whatever point mm-hmm. in life. Yeah. I, I would totally agree. I think, well, I would say you're, first of all, I would say you're never too old to, to start. Um, my grandmother got her first mileage credit card and she showed it to me yesterday. She's 90. She's Stop super it. cute. She was ch- trying to explain to me how she had to charge all of her expenses on her credit card so she could earn enough miles to come visit me in Oregon. And she was really excited because she's like, I think I have a lot now because my washer broke and I had to spend $1,000 last month. I was like, well, you're going to need some more points than that. But <laughs> I, was, I was like, Graham, do you understand how I come visit you all the time? Like, I know how a credit card works. But <laughs> anyway, she was super cute. That was amazing. But I would say doing the work that I've been able to do um, both internationally and also with helping people to travel, mm-hmm. I have met people of all ages, of all single, married, couples, families who have been able to make it work for them. And I would say last year, exactly a year ago, I taught a class on Creative Live. It's an online it's an online learning center. Mm-hmm. And they have lots of great courses on, on all kinds of different things. And in their Money and Life channel, they've done a couple of travel courses. And in the travel course that I taught... We basically taught people how to kind of earn points and miles and to choose, like, the trip that seems unattainable for them. Like, to choose a dream trip and then to go through some different steps. And I've been amazed over the course of the last year watching people go from 
literally, I call it like couch to Cambodia, um, like literally having no travel experience, no points of miles, no, you know, no extra money to do a trip. Watch them learn how to look at what are the things they're spending money on, how they can save for a trip, mm-hmm. but also how they can, you know, earn miles on the things that like on paying their rent, on paying like the things that they're already paying for, how to leverage those different things and and earn the points they need for that and actually be able to book their trips. And it's been almost exactly a year, as I said, and in the last four weeks, I've gotten dozens of emails about, from people about, like, I can't believe that this really happened. I just booked my first, like, round-the-world trip. I just booked my first trip to take my son to the national park. I just booked this. I got this credit card, and I'm taking, like, my wife on our second honeymoon and things that people never thought they'd be able to do. Yeah. And I think the biggest part is just looking at it and saying, like, what is it that I want? Like, what's my dream? It doesn't have to be to travel around the world. Right. Like, maybe you want to travel around the world and fly first class. Maybe you want to, like, go visit your aunt in Omaha. Like, yeah. it's determining what that thing is for you that you can start yeah. doing. Um, uh, but- my dream is just to actually take a flight in first class because uh-huh. I've never done it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. <laughs> it, is a, it, is, it can be a phenomenal thing. Um, I feel like it's one of the last great American class systems. Yes. <laughs> well, it's much more fa- it's much more fantastic if you don't do it on an American carrier. <laughs> That's what I hear. Yes. Yeah. I highly I recommend Asian or Middle Eastern airlines for okay. for first class experience. Okay. And all that to say, like, if you do want to do that, you can do that with points that you earn in American programs. I think a lot oh, of people, a big mistake that. people. Or a big misunderstanding people have. I know, like you said, you are getting American Airlines miles. Right. A lot of people think, oh, I have American Airlines miles. I can only use them, fly them on American. Okay. But you can actually use them on a whole network of partners. Right. Okay. Um, that America is in an alliance with. And then they also have just partners that they have a bilateral relationship with. Mm. And Etihad is actually one of their partners. And Etihad is the airline that flies the A380 with the the double-decker plane is the A380 oh, yeah. with the suites. They call it the apartment. What? And it has, yeah. I've never heard of these. It's, it's insane. I flew it this year. It's insane. What? It has, like, a full bed and a seat, and it's, like, the largest airplane suite I've ever flown in. And wow. I paid 60,000 points to fly on it. That's it? Yes. And people Holy think, like, oh, well, they just actually, American just devalued, so it costs more than that now, yeah. but... Um, but yeah, a lot of people think like, oh, that must cost a millions of points. And mostly it's accessible if you spend a little bit of time figuring it out. Yeah. So I like to help people figure things out like that. And there's yeah. actually a girl who she's married. She's from Ohio and she's actually on a round the world trip for her 30th birthday that she started doing points and miles last year and figured out how to earn enough miles to fly first class around the world for her 30th birthday. Dang, that's amazing. So that's so cool. Uh, but you can do it. It doesn't, like, I know people who lived overseas, you know, who are doing different types of jobs, people who are living overseas doing the kind of work, consulting work or freelance work, right. just being based overseas, people who have families, people who are by themselves. It's actually, in some cases, it's a lot cheaper to live overseas sometimes. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is taking the first step. Yeah. Well, and you make a good point there that... Because another, again, another question that I think naturally comes up with with people, because it gets said to me about the stuff that I do, mm-hmm. that well, you're single, so you can so you can do that. You don't have a family to be responsible for and take care of and all that. And while I understand, yes, you like obviously family adds another mm-hmm. element of responsibility, mm-hmm. but to me, that's always been a 
of course, I've never married. I don't have a family. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a cop-out answer mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Because clearly there are people in the world that are doing the thing that they love and traveling and all that. And mm-hmm. they have a family. Yep. If you're a family and you're listening to this, I have um, a great uh, couple of great things you should read. There is um, a family that I know who basically travel hacked their way around the world. They did most of it on points and miles as a family of four. Um, And their site is taking the big break. And Catherine, who runs the mom, who runs that site, she, um, she's amazing. And her passion now is to help other families figure out how they can travel and empower them and like answer those questions about like, how do you, what do you do with your kids? Like, how do you like school your kids and Mm. different because it does seem it does seem like more unattainable or like oh it's not we're not as flexible as a family right and there are there are those different kinds of pieces but I would say yeah look look into it and find somebody else who's doing it and you'll see that it's possible yeah um, <clears throat> so one thing I did want to ask you about too is well several things but um, you you lived in D.C. for a while. You worked mm-hmm. for, I forget which organization it was. But I worked World for Vision? World Vision. Then. World Vision, mm-hmm. okay. You were based in D.C. And I remember, if I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, you were in D.C. when President Obama was elected. Yes. Right? You lived there. Yes. And you went to the inauguration? Yes. What was that like? Well, it was really fun because it was freezing cold. And yeah. I lived exactly... I lived on 7th Street. So I lived seven blocks away from the Capitol. Right. Yeah, because you were on Capitol Hill, I was on Capitol Hill. I lived seven blocks away from the Capitol, and it took me two and a half hours to walk to the inauguration. To walk there? Yes. And um, it was freezing cold, and so my friends and I, we dressed up in red, white, and blue, like, really dressed up. Like, we wore Mm. wigs. I said, wigs are warm. (laughs) I had a long blue braided wig, and we were dressed so awesome that we were on Good Morning America on the pre-roll of the inauguration. So I think I remember it was seeing quite that. memorable. Yeah. And um, it was fun because DC's gotten a lot cooler, I would say, in the last few years as well. Yeah, I really like but, DC. Um, it was really interesting because there was a lot of people who had come to town for it, and there was a really good party vibe, isn't the right thing, but there was just a really good like community, and people were out yeah. and um, just celebrating. And there was. That's mostly what I remember from it. I also remember that there was, like, tanks in the street because the National Guard was out around the Capitol. Yeah. And they had the highway closed down, and we walked home on the highway. That's the other thing I remember what? about it. Yep, because the highway wow. was closed. Okay. And it was wow. less crowded than the streets. That's cr- that's so. nuts. I, well, the, yeah, the thing that I'm, like, I was curious about with that, because no matter what someone mm-hmm. believes politically or agrees with mm-hmm. or disagrees with politically on that, it was such a huge historic mm-hmm. event um, and I've never really talked to anybody that was uh-huh. there and so I, so I was just curious Like I feel like that particular environment that one in particular I feel like they're all kind of this celebration but mm-hmm. that one seemed to me like it would have been bigger crazier yeah. just because of the that's historic that's actually the only inauguration it. I went to so I can't compare it to to any other ones there were a lot of there were a lot of there was tons of people. People had come in from all over. Um, it, it did seem like a really big deal. I'm not very political myself. Um, yeah. But 
Yeah, there was a, cool a really thing. great spirit in this yeah. city. But I feel like the, the like that you being able to be there was a product of your life pieces mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you ended up living in DC, mm-hmm. and that happened to be when you lived there. Yeah. As opposed to. I'm guessing you pro- there probably would not have been a scenario where you went, you know, I'm going to go live in D.C. Or, hey, this inauguration is happening. I'm going to go fly to D.C. so I can be there for that yeah. for that thing. Um, just life events mm-hmm. kind of led you into that. Yeah, life events. I would say probably that's how I travel mostly. I very rarely, like, travel. I mean, I came back from my sister's wedding here, you know, like personal yeah. family events, yes. But I love to, like... I love to kind of be in the place where I happen to be and make the most of whatever kind of event is going on. Right. Um, I also, in D.C., I was there for um, Gerald Ford's funeral, and that to me was oh, as wow. interesting as a, the inauguration yeah. when they have a president lay in state, and you like basically wait for hours in a line to get into the Capitol. And, to look at his coffin. Yeah, basically, but it's it, the kind of the... What's the word? The... The... With all the military around, they have people from each of the armed forces there. Oh yeah, just standing the ceremony guard. Yeah, like things. the ceremony, yeah. the circle, the, the pump tradition. and circumstance yeah. around yeah, 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 it, yeah. and there's a big parade and everything like that. Right. That's also just really interesting. It just I think for me, it feels like you're being a part of history. Right. And I actually was in Italy a couple of weeks ago, and my family comes from my dad's family comes from Italy, and I've been to Italy, you know, half a dozen times, and. On this trip, I was like, well, I have an extra day in Rome. I think I'm going to go try to find one of the towns where my grandparents came from. And I had, like, a day. And it wasn't a big, like, it wasn't a big trip that I had made a big deal of, you know, planning a big trip to go do this. But just taking advantage of figuring out, like, I figured out where the town was. And then I took, like, public transport there and found, like, it took me, like, a half a day. And I wound up standing in front of the church where my great-grandparents were married. Oh, wow. And I was just like... Wow, and it was such a meaningful experience, but it was also a little bit of like, I'm going to be there. How can I take advantage of the opportunity of the place I'm in? Interesting. You know, yeah. and that was another yeah. thing that turned out to be like a really meaningful experience. And I think a lot of times people go into travel, and I think it depends on your travel style too. But I think a lot of times people go in with like a big list of everything they have to tick off. Like, right. I can't say I've been to Rome unless I go on the Colosseum tour. If I like have to go to St. Peter's, I have to do all these things. Right. And all of those things are super cool to see, but. It's also great sometimes to go to a place and like think, what would it be like if I lived here? Like, what do regular people do right. yeah. here on a daily basis? And I'm really yeah. just fascinated by people and culture, and I think that's one of the reasons why I love travel so much. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's cool. Like when I travel, I like to go. I like to see touristy things. Mm-hmm. Like I naturally turn into, oh, I'm going to be a tourist. But at the same time, it annoys me uh-huh. because I grew up in a tourist town yeah. <laughs> and I hated tourists. So, um, but I, one of the biggest things to me is I have to go, I have to go do things. I want to see what local yep. life is like, like whatever city it is. Yeah, cool. I want to see these touristy things, mm-hmm. but I want to go hang out at a place that's not the touristy place to hang out, mm-hmm. like, you know, normal every day. So one of my experiences, well, I went to Nicaragua mm-hmm. a few years ago, and the last day we were there, I, the people were with, it was like a mission trip, it was mm-hmm. a, a Christian mission trip, and the last, they were there, the people were like, what do you want to do tonight? And I'm like, I want to go to, we're in this smaller town in Nicaragua called Matagalpa, and I was like, I want to go to a local bar. 
just a normal bar that you, mm-hmm. you live here, like where would people go? I'm like, oh yeah, let's go to this place. So we went so we go to this bar, and one thing that was fascinating to me, there was five of us, all five of us got two beers each, and it was mm-hmm. like $10 in American uh-huh. money. It was so <laughs> cheap. Uh, but the thing that blew my mind was I'm sitting there, and I felt like in some way I was at home because in the same way that if you went to a bar here in America, mm-hmm. um, there's music playing, there's a live band playing, or there's music playing over the mm-hmm. radio, and... You know, if it's a if it's a popular song that people know the words to, uh-huh. and people start singing to it, uh-huh. and they're raising their glasses uh-huh. and all this kind of stuff, same kind of thing. But it was totally Nicaraguan mm-hmm. music, and I'm sitting there and I thought to myself, I, th- like, I we have a preconceived idea of what third world country is like yep. or what a world the rest of the world is like and then I'm in this environment where locals are and they're doing the exact same thing that I would be doing at a bar in America mm-hmm. with just different music and I thought man humanity no matter where exactly. we're at is and I had no idea what they were singing I didn't <laughs> know any of these people but I felt instantly at home in that environment because I felt like I was in mm-hmm. a normal situation yeah. The world is, I like to say, the world is full of a lot of regular people doing regular things. You know? Yeah. And I think a lot of times, if you've never traveled and your whole perception of the world is what you see in the media or what you see in social media or, you know, you have a preconceived notion about what's happening, but that would be somebody judging, like, going to a foreign, people, be, living in a, being from a foreign place and only believing, like, America's all like Hollywood or New York. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I think a question I get asked a lot as being like a woman who travels by myself most of the time, mm-hmm. people always ask me about my safety and, you know, how I feel and am I not scared to be in a place, like mm-hmm. be in different countries. And I'm like, you know what? In all these countries, there's a lot of women. There's a lot of women in the world, you know? Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm cautious and, you know, I have common sense and I, you know, I'm careful about what I do and where I go or going out at night and stuff by myself and what cars I get into, but that's the same stuff I do in America. You know, I lived in Sudan and I came home and moved to Washington, D.C. And the day I moved to D.C., someone got mugged on my doorstep. And like, everyone was like, weren't you so scared in Sudan? And I was like, I feel more at risk in D.C. Right. You know, and I think, but I think the thing is like, the world is full of regular people and there's extremists everywhere. And, you know, I've been in Muslim countries where I've been like treated with more respect than I've been treated in some places in the U S because, you know, I think a lot of people think women are treated without respect. And in some places, you know, some places they are, but that's not like what you think isn't necessarily the standard everywhere. I felt very safe in a lot of places based on a culture that's not mine. Yeah. So interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. I was talking to somebody the other day, a, another girl that's going to be a, that is uh, will be on the podcast. We recorded recently, and she's she's moving to Paris to do mm-hmm. her graduate degree. Mm-hmm. She's a writer, works in coffee mm-hmm. world as well, and um, almost every female that I've interviewed, mm-hmm. it's kind of there's been kind of this question or revolving mm-hmm. theme a little bit about. Um, it's almost been difficult for me to find women mm-hmm. that I feel like yes, I sh- they people should hear them because they're actually doing mm-hmm. whatever it is that they love. And I don't know if it's a product of our world, our culture, or just mm-hmm. in America that like things are so conditioned more for men to mm-hmm. do whatever, mm-hmm. and, like 
But for a woman to go, I'm going to do, I'm going to follow my dream, I'm going to do mm-hmm. the, I'm going to start the business that I want to do, or I'm going to travel the world mm-hmm. because I want to, it's almost like we built the system that like works against that. Mm-hmm. And then when someone does, we're like, oh, wow, look at this, look at this incredible yeah. female that did this thing. Um, I think it's awesome though that you're telling those stories because there are a lot of women who are really doing yeah. amazing things. And I think maybe a lot of the women who are doing amazing things aren't necessarily the people who are I think maybe women are less prone to talk about themselves or talk about what they're doing as well in our culture yeah and so I did learn a lesson from the second episode uh, that I did was with a girl named Natalie Mm -hmm. and uh, she has a she has a floral design studio Mm -hmm. in Tampa called Mm -hmm. Belle Fleur and I had never in my life thought about this because I'm a guy, obviously, mm-hmm. and I asked her a question at one point, like about her business, and um, you know, like when you when you're gone, like what do you do? You like what's the legacy of your business you want to leave? Like, do you want this to be a thing that you can hand off to somebody mm-hmm. one day? And I was so surprised by her answer, but it made total sense, and I thought, oh yeah, it makes total. Why? I'm a mm-hmm. moron uh-huh. because her answer was, um, you know, I think that's a, I think that's more of a masculine uh-huh. mentality. Because I don't ever really think about a legacy of like mm-hmm. the business that I have, mm-hmm. and it dawned on me, oh, exactly what you just said. Like there are a lot of women doing the thing they mm-hmm. love, and they're doing mm-hmm. it, but they're not. Where men are like, hey, look at the thing I'm doing. Yeah. We're talking about it, Brian. Mm-hmm. You should come see my business and all mm-hmm. that. Where women are just like, no, this is something I'm passionate about. I'm just doing it. Exactly, and a lot of the times you have to. This is probably a sexist thing to say as well, but a lot of the times you have to take what what a man says about his business and like subtract twenty percent, and then yeah. say what a woman takes what a woman says about her business and like add add twenty percent. Yeah, you know, and then you kind of get a uh, parity, maybe yeah. um, you know generalization, no, but right. but no, you're totally you know, you're at. I'm speaking as a uh-huh. man. Absolutely right. So, but we I think like the lesson for, for women there is like, we, you know, for myself as well, like, I have been more challenged in the last couple of years coming back and saying, like, you know, what I am doing is really cool. I need to talk about this. I need yeah. to, like, you know, tell other, you know, I can't complain that, I can't complain if women, you know, don't get, don't have equality in some areas if I'm not like standing up and talking about what I'm doing or, or yeah. asking for it in some way. Right. You know, and I think, I think I actually had an interesting conversation. I don't know what you think about this. I had an interesting conversation with a colleague the other day about how I felt about in Portland, they're building a, a women's co-working space, like a startup co-working space. Okay. And I was like, I don't know what I think about that. I was like, hmm. I think it's, you know, I'm not opposed to it, but I was like, what problem are we trying to solve by doing that? Because if the problem we're trying to solve is that there isn't as much opportunity in the startup world for women, so we're creating a parallel system, then we aren't actually creating opportunity in the world where we want to be part of. We're creating a parallel system, you know, versus like if you're doing this internationally somewhere, if the problem you're trying to solve is that women aren't comfortable being in you know, a male, that male space, right. then creating a parallel system gives them the same opportunity a man can have in a way that they're, they have a freedom and they're comfortable to step into that. So right. it's kind of a, a stepping stone into that point of equality. But I, it was something that I was actually surprised to hear myself say, yeah. like, I don't know how I feel about huh? uh, all female co-working space. I'm not opposed to it, but what prop, like, does it yeah. actually help us try to achieve what? Yeah. You're right. What do we want? I don't know. Hmm. 
Yeah, it seems almost counter or doing the same thing that you're fighting against, mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Because I think about, you know, there's not... I mean, are there male-only co-working spaces? No. Anywhere? No, but I think a lot of times it... Well, not just a traditional co-working space where yeah. you, like, pay and have a hot desk or something, but the kind where there's, like, mentorship and, yeah. you know, um, like, huh. startup-type right. events and funding that comes out of it. And, yeah. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Interesting. It sounds... And, I, yeah, I don't know. I would. I don't know how I would feel about that either. Uh it's where my brain goes when so I live like part time in the development world and part time in the startup world yeah so I have I have lots of thoughts upstairs yeah no it's yeah interesting Uh, yeah I don't know what to say (laughs) about that it kind of makes me think a little bit and I don't want to I'm not trying I'm not trying to be critical of the Mm -hmm. idea but it kind of makes me think about how if I can relate it to in Christian world, so mm-hmm. to speak, where like uh, we're gonna create our own version of whatever the thing is, mm-hmm. like yeah, uh, yep. we're gonna create our own rock music, mm-hmm. or we're gonna create our own Christian coffee shops mm-hmm. that are dedicated to just Christianity type of. Which and I'm always like, why? Like, yeah, just you're creating you a bigger chasm. A... If yeah. your your goal is to like create some kind of like parity or quality or something and then by creating a parallel system you're actually creating more division yeah so yeah that's a good point that's interesting how do you like living in Portland is it as weird as uh, uh Portland's interesting Portland's interesting there's you know some people are really into being weird you know I've always been the weird person like living in DC I was the weirdest person I knew I had like one or two friends who were, who were as weird as me and I like Portland in a way because I'm like the most normal person I know <laughs> <laughs> It is the things when I just when I moved to Portland two and a half years ago, when I left, I was living in Cambodia full time and made a decision to go somewhere I thought I might like. And I like the Northwest. I like that Portland's an hour and a half drive to the top of the mountain. I like that it's an hour and a half drive to the ocean. Okay. It's beautiful. You can you know go hiking ten minutes away from your house. Yeah. Anywhere and so it doesn't. I don't think it rains as much as people say, but I think maybe we've just had a dry couple of years. <laughs> and I also travel a lot, and I try to travel when the weather's bad. Yeah. And my family lives in Florida, so if it gets too gray, I can come visit. But I do. I like it, and I like that there is a very creative spirit in the yeah. city, and um, there's lots of interesting events happening all the time, and there's lots of great coffee shops and really great people. And yeah, so it takes time anywhere. I feel like the older I get and try to adapt to a new place and you know build a community in a new place, it, it gets harder, and it is different for me to 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 be to move to a place in the U.S. versus to move to an international place. Is it international? I feel like I've kind of perfected how I move into a new international place, and you're always there with kind of the mindset of you're going to be there two years, one to two years. Okay. And you're surrounded by people with the same mindset and who also do the same kind of work Mm. as you do, typically, or understand the work that you do. And so you make friends really quickly, and you have something in common with any other foreigner living in a strange place. Right. And so, like, friendships are, like, fast and, like, really deep. Yeah. And it's been interesting transitioning back into trying to live, like, live in my own culture, which I think most people think is easy. Like, oh, you're coming back to America. It's going to be so easy. And I'm like, yeah, but everyone here who's my age has their own friends, and they have families, 
and they have like mm. they're in like their own routine in life and right. they're not necessarily like looking for new buddies. Right. So it is it has been interesting but you find I found really great people in Portland and that's cool. It's been good. Yeah, I don't I've know if I'll be there forever. But. Yeah. <laughs> I've never really thought about that. That does that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. One and two, I, I guess I feel like if you're living in a foreign country, like people that live in that particular city in mm-hmm. that foreign country, they know that you're different and they know that yeah. you're not from their country, so mm-hmm. or their city. Mm-hmm. So you probably get treated a little differently mm-hmm. because they know whether they like it or not, they yeah. know you're not from there. Yeah. Especially you if you move. live in Asia and you're tall like I am. Okay. You can't yeah, see me sure. on this podcast. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go, but if you move to any American city, like mm-hmm. you look like everyone else usually yeah. and they're just like, yeah. Okay, it's the same. Actually, a lot of foreigners struggle um, living in European countries, English speaking mm. expats, because they just very much blend in and it's also in a lot of like the kind of colder climate. Yeah. You know, Eastern or Eastern and Western European countries, it is hard, I think, to build community. Interesting. As well. Oh, wow. We yeah. should still travel. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so the other thing I want to ask you about is your the hammocks. Tell me about the yes. hammock business you have. Well, um, I have, I started with uh, two of my friends almost six years ago, a business called Color Cloud Hammocks, colorcloudhammocks.com. And, um, kind of the idea to start it. I've always been a lover of hammocks. It kind of goes with the traveling. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a bright yellow hammock um, that I bought in a market somewhere in the world. And when I lived in D.C., you asked me about living in D.C. When I lived in D.C. for three years, I used to hang my hammock outside. And I was really frustrated with D.C. because I moved there from Sudan, which is like the most oppressed like country in the world. Mm-hmm. And I moved to D.C., which is probably like one of the most powerful places in the world. Right. And in Sudan, all the people were so joyful and so colorful and just like amazing. And when I moved to D.C., from there, everyone was like dressed in black, spent their entire day looking at their Blackberry. It's like pre, pre-iPhone. Um, <laughs> they spent the whole day looking at their Blackberry and they'd walk around and they'd like barely look up. Or like, And I would walk to work and I would like say hi to everyone I passed on the street like out of a social experiment to see like who would even say hi back. I didn't get very many highs, but I used to hang my hammock out in front of my yard. Okay. And when I would hang my hammock outside and sit in it, people would walk past and they would stop and they would look up and they would talk to me. And I was like, hammocks are magic. I need to get hammocks out into the world. <laughs> and so that's where the idea of starting a hammock company came from. Okay. And I had two friends and we had, we chatted about it. And one of my friends and I, we like did a bunch of research and we bought some ripstop nylon online and paid a bunch of money for it. And we spent three days trying to figure out how to sew a hammock. And That sounds terrible. We did it and we were like... This is an awesome hammock. There is not a business in this unless we sell hammocks for $3,000. <laughs> Okay. And so we kind of like shelved the idea and like life went on and I got offered a job to live in Asia full time. I was working full time for, for World Vision and doing humanitarian work around the region. And I lived there for a few months and I decided to get some pants made because it was really hot. Mm-hmm. And I found these three women who had just started their own tailoring shop. These three Cambodian women, very entrepreneurial, and they did amazing sewing work. And they were just getting started out. And when I went to the market to look for my fabric for my pants, I found nylon, colored, bright colored nylon. And I just had this bell go off in my head and I bought some and 
I called my friends and I was like, I think I figured out how, how we can make hammocks. And I went back to the tailoring store where I had met these three women and I drew a picture and I was like, can you make this for me? And I went back and they had done it the next day and it was beautiful. And I went back to the market and I bought more fabric to make four more sets and they sewed it and then I started trying different things like what if we put a pocket in it what if it had a, it was when the iPhone first came out okay. like what if we put an iPhone pocket in it wouldn't that be so cool we'd be like the only <laughs> hammock with an iPhone pocket right and um, so it kind of the the thing the idea came from there and we actually launched the business on my 37th birthday and we were like let's just sell them to like let's just see if people are interested so we made 37 of them yeah. and we sold them through our social networks and we sold them in like two hours. Wow. And we were like, I think people would like these. And so we kept making them and um, launched. we launched the business from there and kept making them. And the women from Cambodia made them for four and a half years. Okay. And um, we made them there. And then we've always sold them online. And about a year and a half ago... Well, two and a half years ago, I moved here, but we were still continuing to make them in Cambodia. And then we were really struggling, like, with how do we grow the business, but really maintain, like, the values of the business. Because myself and my two business partners, we all work, have worked in international development. We've all, like, come from the humanitarian world. We're all very, not just concerned with, you know, how much something, how cheap you can get something. We're all very right. concerned. Like, where does it come from? Who's making it? How are right. they being paid, you know? And I'm not a huge fan of, like, the buy one, give one money model or the, you know, buy this and I'm going to give 10% of my money away. Um, I'm more of a fan of, I would rather the, I would rather pay the people who are making this. I would rather pay them well and making sure that we're creating every piece of our product in a sustainable way. And we know where it comes from. Yeah. And so we do that with our hammocks and we were like, we were trying to figure out how we could like responsibly and sustainably grow the business and actually came up with a very unusual solution. We're now making the hammocks in Ethiopia. Okay. And um, we're doing it the same way. We're working through a small company and that employs women to, to sew the hammocks. Okay. And we're working through them. We're actually able to produce our own fabric as well. Oh, no so, way. Yeah. So we're able, to, we're able to scale down the number of different color hammocks that we're making. Because in Cambodia, we would buy everything locally through the market. But right. we couldn't control what came in. So okay. someone really loved red hammocks. And we're like, great. Oh, but there's no red there's no red fabric in the market this year, you know? And so it became really difficult. And unless we wanted to import fabric, cheap fabric from China, we couldn't, we couldn't guarantee. And that made it really hard for us to like scale, to be able to sell with retailers and stuff. And so, um, and at the same time, the three women who were sewing our hammocks, they had also really grown their tailoring business. And so they have, they still have a great business in Cambodia and we phased out working with them. And now we phased up working in, in Ethiopia, and we used to be able to make 30 hammocks at a time, and now we can make 800 hammocks at a time. And so last year, we did our first, we started piloting retail opportunities, and we started selling um, mostly in Minnesota, because I think our theory was if you can sell a hammock in Minnesota, you can sell a hammock anywhere. (laughs) And we started selling them at the University of Minnesota, and a couple boutique stores, and some garden shops, and really learned that they sell really well in the gift market, in the garden market, and they're super fun, and we have six, we took our our top selling combinations from when we were when we had a whole bunch of different okay. colors. Okay. And so we have six different color combinations in this year's collection. And we've been 
like we still sell them online at Color Cloud. We sell them on Amazon, and we also have them in a whole bunch of retailers in several different states now. And we're looking to grow that. That's so cool. So that's amazing. And it's and it's but you know for me it was one of those things I was curious about. Yeah. Going back to our initial conversation, I never started out and was like, I want to you know have a hammock company as big as REI you know someday. I just I was like. I love hammocks. I'm curious about them. I want to make the world more colorful. I think they make people happy. Yeah. How can I make them? Yeah. And one step is led to another. And if I remember correctly, they are part of your niche with them is that they're portable. Mm -hmm. You can take the, when you travel, you take a hammock with you. Yep. They weigh two pounds. And they were two pounds, and they have they come with the ropes and hooks attached, Mm -hmm. and they're seven and a half feet wide and nine feet long. Okay. And they have eighty inches of rope on each side. Wow. So you can basically hang them between fifteen a fifteen foot space between two trees. Okay. Or on a hammock, and because of the way the ropes and S hooks that are attached, you can hang them on a signpost. I hung one in Australia. I pulled over on the side of the road and hung one between like a street sign. Okay. And the I opened the hatchback of my car and hung it between like the door jam. Took a wow. little nap along the side of the road. That's amazing. So you can really you can hang them anywhere and yeah. you know people who like I sleep in mine, I camp in mine. Yeah. It's so, only two pounds. That's it's incredible. It's only two pounds. And they're only sixty nine dollars. <laughs> Sweet. Including the ropes. So um, <laughs> they're and they're really awesome. Um Yeah, that's a that's an interesting thing. I who would think a hammock would be something that would like stop people? Mm-hmm. But I'm sure color has a lot to do with it as well. Mm-hmm. And it's where it's at. Yeah. That's also another environment is probably mm-hmm. a big. What is that? That mm-hmm. doesn't seem like it should be there. I'm going to stop yeah. and pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Thing. So uh, it's colorful and it's fun yeah. and it, you know, and it doesn't. For me, it doesn't. It takes a second to hang it up. But really, it's a matter of wrapping yeah. a rope around something and. You can, like, take a break anywhere. I'll take mine to the park in Portland with my laptop. Some days I just want to get out. And yeah. They have book pockets in the inside. That's We we oh. went away from the iPhone pocket, which is right. smart. You know, maybe we were yeah. we were early uh, early thinkers that, you know, maybe Android might make a bigger phone or Apple might change the size of their phones or something. Right. Okay. But so there's a book pocket in each hammock. Nice. And, um... I'll go, you know, I'll take it, I'll hang it up, I'll sit outside at my house, and yeah. it's just fast. It's like a, a, it's like a mini vacation, you know? Right. You can take it anywhere. Yeah. And so. That's, that's so brilliant. We uh, need to take more breaks. Yeah. Well, the rest uh-huh. of the world understands that. Yeah. America doesn't <laughs> exactly. understand that so Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I like your philosophy on it, too. Uh, I feel like the way you're going about making them mm-hmm. is more empowering mm-hmm. to people than, like you said, the one-for-one. One. Mm-hmm. The receiver of that free mm-hmm. whatever it is is not really empowering to that yeah. person. You know, we could give away hammocks in a country, but, you know, most people have hammocks or can buy hammocks or afford hammocks. And right. when you give away stuff in a, you know, in a developing country a lot of times and you flood their market, it negatively affects a lot of the people who are selling mm, that item. And I think a lot of people don't think about that. And, yeah. you know, I'm not incredibly opposed to people doing one-for-one things. I think some sure. of them work, but, you know, you can... I think a lot of people get confused and they... You know, the, the marketing of a lot of one-for-one things is... It's 
they companies market towards your desire to do good. Mm-hmm. And so you basically pay a lot of money for, but it's not a charity. It's a business. And you're paying a lot of money to buy two things and they give one of them away and they're making mm-hmm. money off of it. And so the, at the end of the day, the company is, it's a business and that's the company Company's that's making, making the money. The money. You know, the... it's not the people who are making the shoes. Right. And so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Me too. That's awesome. Very, very cool. So, um, so to kind of wrap things up, I, one thing I always ask every, every mm-hmm. person that's on mm-hmm. the podcast, uh, because I kind of explained to you why I started the podcast, mm-hmm. what kind of thing. Um, but for people listening, I think there's an idea about, well, you can do it. Mm-hmm. That's great. That worked out mm-hmm. for you. Um, my question is always, do you think that every, do you have a belief that every person has the capability, the ability to boldly go do whatever it is that they're mm-hmm. passionate about, mm-hmm. to travel, to write their mm-hmm. book, whatever the thing mm-hmm. is, um, do you feel like that's something that every person has the capability to do? I do think every person has the capability to, to do it. I think... I think it's a, I think there's probably a scale, like, you know, maybe, you know, maybe someone today is like, oh yeah, I would love to go travel the world, but, you know, I have, I'm a single mom to like infant twins or something. It's not, that really isn't a a practical, you know, it might not be very practical for right now, but I think that even that single mom with twins right now has the capacity to boldly do something. You know, like, I think you always have a choice no matter what your circumstances, no matter how much privilege you have or don't, like, you have a choice of how you're, of what you're going to do every day and what attitude you can have when you do it. And I gave you that example of, you know, when I moved from Sudan to DC and I think I learned so much from the people who I met when I was working in Sudan because they were like, they had nothing. They were like refugees who like had lost most of their family members and they were the most joyful giving people and they would they would they were interested in learning things they were interested in sharing things they were interested in teaching things and they were interested in making their lives better in whatever way they could right and they weren't coming from any place of like oh I'm gonna like do this and change the world you know they were doing what they could with what they had and I think the step to like boldly going is like to have big dreams but not to be frustrated if you can't make your big dream happen like have a have a small dream or have a small step and make yeah. that happen and you know do things one step at a time yeah no that's great your answer. dreams might change so yeah true yeah uh no that's great because that's yes and that's something i always the way i always in the podcast too is asking the question is to the people listening that what can you do this week or this month mm-hmm. to boldly go? But I think in our, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's an American thing or what. I don't. Maybe it's just a human thing. We want whatever the big thing is. We want that. Mm-hmm. For, so we feel like for me to do, uh, for me to boldly go, I have to get that big thing. Mm-hmm. We don't look at it as all right. What's the first step that I exactly. can take? I can't get there yet, but I can start the first paragraph of mm-hmm. that book that yep. I want to write. 
or I can get the credit card or the yep. account that will uh-huh. build points for me. And one day we'll get down there, mm-hmm. but it's a series of steps. Or even, I mean, even the smallest step of like stating what that intention is. I think mm. a lot of people are even afraid to like say it out loud or tell someone because they're afraid they might not get it or they might fail. Oh, yeah. And I think that's even just having that intention is a powerful thing. That's, yeah, that's so true. Yeah. It's interesting. Almost every podcast episode, there's been this talk of like fear being that mm-hmm. thing that stops you. And that's but that's something mm-hmm. I've never even thought about. Like just mm-hmm. stating what it is that you want to do or are passionate about. Mm-hmm. The fear of even stating it because you might not get it, mm-hmm. or you might look like a failure because you told someone this is what you were going to do and you didn't make it. Mm-hmm. You didn't get it. Interesting. Yeah. So cool. All right. So. Um, your websites, Woody? Wanderingforgood.com is my main website. Okay. You can find me on all things social at wanderingzito. Z-I-T-O. Yeah. Yeah. And wandering, not wondering. I do wonder what I'm going to do sometimes, <laughs> but mostly I'm wandering with an A. Right. Wandering, wandering Zito. Got it. And yeah, and there's Very links cool. to links to my book, Upgrade Unlocked, UpgradeUnlocked.com. But that, okay. there's links to that in the Travel Hacking Cartel and okay. and the and ColorCloudHammocks.com. They're all on my at Wandering for Good. Okay. Awesome. Uh, what's your next trip? My next trip is I'm going back to Oregon this week, and I'm hoping to actually stay there for a couple of months because I've been traveling Stop since it. January. And so, have you really? Yeah, the Pacific Northwest. This is, is April right now. Yeah, the okay. Pacific Northwest is beautiful in the summer. I've already been to three new countries this year, so I'm ready for a little break. I'm going to take some time, and then I'm supposed to go to New Zealand for my birthday in October. Nice. All paid for with points and miles. <laughs> You're amazing. All right, everyone, go awesome. <laughs> go check out our website because you'll learn to travel. Uh, so, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. You're so amazing. You're so cool. Uh, so. As I said, last last question to you, the listener, what can you do today, this week, this month to boldly go to start the process? And in the context of like what Stephanie said, what can you do to start to travel, to um, look for opportunities to, uh, to do the thing that you want to do and follow your passion? So uh, go do it. Thanks. And for the, everyone listening, for all the background noise, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, Bandit Coffee, if you live in St. Pete or the Tampa area, you should come to Bandit Coffee. They let us, so we're sitting in the back room and all their, uh, all their noise and everything going on in the background. So uh, come check them out. You're awesome, Stephanie. Thanks. Thank you. Everybody's done. <laughs> Friends through eternity.